Thank you for joining the Capital Church Podcast. We believe that Jesus is for you and that through these expressions of our community, you will find hope, healing, and belonging. To learn more, join us live every week online and visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at here um, today. So let's begin. Jesus tells his disciples that they are called in Matthew 5, 43 through 48, that they are called to bless their enemies. Bless their enemies? Over the last um, probably six, seven, eight weeks, we've been talking about the five uh, distinctive features of the early church. So we spent several weeks talking about a, an understanding of human sexuality and how the Bible sees sexuality. The classic Dr. Galen said that early Christians believe in bodily resurrection and they don't sleep around. So early Christians had a high sexual character. So we talked about that. We also talked about how early Christians loved the poor and they took care of the poor. We also talked about how early Christians tabled uh, in, in a fellowship situation with people from different ethnicities and different classes. And Trace and Shane did a great job. And then last week, Pastor Ken talked about how uh, the distinctive feature of the early church is how we took care, they took care of the, of the children and those who were most vulnerable and the family. So those are four distinctive features that we have kind of walked through. Uh, two of them, if you came in here and you're not like familiar with the series and you just heard that, you say, well, I think two of those are Republican things. And then you might, some of you are like, ah, I disagree. And you say, I think two of those are Democrat things. And I would like to say, no, 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 homie, don't play that. All of these are kingdom of God things. I'm not hating on a political party or anything. I'm just saying these are kingdom of God things. But what I'm talking about today, no one practices hardly at all. Jesus tells his disciples again emphatically that they are called to bless their enemies. So how in the world do we do that? As I scream and shout and spit on you. How in the world do we love the immoral? How do we love bad people? How do we love arrogant, hateful, disgusting people who want to spoil God's good creation? Right? How do you bless the Philadelphia Eagles if you are a Dallas Cowboy fan, right? <laughs> How do you bless, more seriously, a Republican if you're a Democrat or a Democrat if you're a Republican? In fact, no one in our culture knows how. No one practices blessing their enemy. Researchers who study human conflict have defined a phenomenon in American politics, and they have called it this. It's, it's a fancy terminology, just move on if you don't like it. It's called motive attribution asymmetry. It is this idea that your political philosophy is based in love and benevolence while your political opponent's philosophy is based in hate. Now let me say this from the outset. I think there are better ways of seeing the world politically than other ways. I don't believe that every truth claim is equally valid. Can I get an amen? I think the Christian story is the truth. And that we have a responsibility as Christians to disagree, to speak the truth in love, and to call out sin and wickedness and human folly. Can I get an amen? Yes. But we are called to do that in love. 
We are not escapists from the very beginning of early Christianity. We have been summoned by heaven to take the good news to the streets and to reflect the love of God to our world. So again, the question is, how does the church love people, love bad people? Well, here's my answer to that. That's why we exist here today. We exist here, we're sucking oxygen on this planet right now. We just got done with some nice worship songs. Now you're listening to a fiery redhead preach to you and spit on you, right? Because we exist to love all people. Here's the thing, the mission of the church is to show the world God's love. And the point of loving your enemy is this, the measure of a mature Jesus-shaped love is one's capacity to love your enemy. If you cannot love your enemy, you have not fully been developed and matured in the love and life of God himself. So, what are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about contempt. We live, we live in a culture of contempt. Contempt, in the words of one expert, is a sulfuric acid for love, right? If you want a definition of contempt, contempt is a smoldering or seething hatred for someone else. Do you feel that in our world? You guys are really quiet here this, this afternoon or morning. It's still morning. Get your coffee, wake up, go with me, right? It's 12 o'clock. All right, let's go. You guys ready? In other words, perfect contempt, if contempt is a smoldering hatred for someone else, perfect contempt for someone casts out all love, right? Right? Contempt, in other words, contempt and love are mutually incompatible. You cannot be a person that allows contempt to shape your mind and your heart and your whole person and at the same time be a follower of Jesus. It is impossible. Now, you could be on a trajectory where the Holy Spirit is working in your life and you're responding to that and he is healing you, but if you're just stuck in the mud and you're unwilling to listen to the love of God and release blessing forgive, and forgiveness to people, you are not in the way of the kingdom of God. Yeah. I knew I wasn't gonna get a lot of amens this surface, but that's all right. I still love you. People have characterized our time as being angry. Let me just say this really quick. They are absolutely wrong. This is, we don't live in an age of anger, guys. We live in an age of contempt. In other words, anger is a self-limiting response and it seeks to point out what's wrong in relationships or even what's wrong in the world. In fact, Paul talks about righteous anger, which is be angry and do not sin, which Paul is essentially saying, and he basically means you, if you care about a relationship, um, then you're gonna respond in a way uh, of anger and frustration if that relationship has been damaged by sin or wickedness or folly. In other words, anger is all about a response about a relationship that should not be. Does that make sense? For example, uh, when one child of mine, and I've shared this story many times before, takes a toy and hits another child of mine over the head repeatedly, my response as the father and king of my castle, what, what? My response to my children is a loving and firm no. It's not like a quiet mouse, no. It is a loving, thank you for the laugh. 
It's a loving and firm, homie, you won't do that again. See my face, I am angry. Have I, do I have every right as a father to be angry over something like that? Absolutely. Be angry and do not sin. We can be angry over the lying that we find in politics. We can be angry over the divisive rhetoric that we find in our culture. We can be angry over that which is false. We can be angry over the things by which people spoil God's good creation. That is okay. But anger, if it turns into contempt, is sinful and God will not bless it. In fact, James chapter 3 says this, that the righteous, or excuse me, the wrath of man will never produce the righteousness of God. So be angry, but do not sin. That's my recommendation to everyone in this room. Be angry and do not allow your anger to be turned into or transformed into contempt. Now, let me just say this really uh, quick. Contempt is different than anger. While anger seeks, in the words of one expert, to bring someone back into the fold, contempt seeks to exile. It attempts to mock, shame, and permanently exclude from relationships by belittling and ignoring. Contempt, in other words, is the breakdown or the violation of shalom. Shalom is basically the way in which God has intended this world to be. How did God create this world? He wanted this world to be to function, I'll say it this way, and to be structured around well-ordered relationships with people in God, people in themselves, people in others, and people in creation. Contempt seeks to break all of that down, twist it all up, and mess up and graffiti God's beautiful world. Psalm 133 says, blessed are those who are in unity, right? Unity is God's desire. Contempt seeks to erode the fabric of unity in our lives. You can see this working itself out on TV, social media, in the real world. Our media sources have turned into what one scholar says, an outraged industrial complex, imprisoning people to a vicious cycle of contempt for all sorts of people. I was hoping for a good amen on that one. Thank you for that. But here's the thing, if you have contempt in your heart, it not only hurts others, it more profoundly hurts you. Can can I I just continue to make this distinction? You can speak the truth, you can disagree, you can even in love criticize a defective idea. Please, we are not as followers of Jesus called to escape the world. We are called to bring the gospel into the public square. I believe that with my my whole heart. So we will speak the truth in love, and we've been doing that over the last seven, eight weeks. Can I get an amen? We've been unapologetic about what the Bible and how the Bible sees certain controversial subjects in our world. But with that in mind, we are called not to treat other people with contempt because it profoundly hurts not only the other, it hurts hurts you. Contempt and hatred damages your immune system, so much so that researchers suggest that couples that treat each other with contempt die up to 20 years earlier than couples who do not. And here we come to Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to read this, verses 21 through 26. Jesus, before he addresses pride, lust, greed, lack of generosity, divorce, all the different things that we experience as, as humans in life, being a Dallas Cowboy fan, being a cat person, all those horrible things, right? 
Jesus, in the words of one scholar, deals with the guts of human existence in Matthew chapter 5. But in this sermon, it's called the Sermon on the Mount, if you don't know. And this sermon, Jesus most likely preached many, many, many different times. But this sermon arranged by Matthew is set within a movement towards becoming a person of love. Everyone say love. Jesus is showing us, beginning in verse 21, okay, guys, this is how you become a person of love. And there's a trajectory and there's a progression that Jesus takes his disciples through as he walks them through his sermon. So how do you become a person of love? Jesus starts with, well, you have to eliminate anger and contempt from your heart. In other words, if you want to become a person who blesses and loves as Jesus did, if you want to bless your enemies as Jesus commanded at the end of Matthew chapter 5, if you want to be a person that's fully mature, spiritually, emotionally, physically, in your whole person as you follow Jesus, right? If you want to be that kind of person who loves, you can never start with trying to bless your enemies. You can't just wake up one day, right? And just throw the covers off, the sun's out, the birds are singing, you feel kind of good, and then you go out and you start blessing all the people that you have hatred for. It's never going to happen, right? If you want to be a baller and you want to play in the NBA, you have to what? You have to, in first grade, learn how to dribble the basketball, right? There's a progression. The same thing is true with our life before God. If you want to learn how to bless your enemies and love like Jesus loved, you have to begin with addressing anger in your own heart. I remember my wife and I, we were about 10 years ago, we went to New York City and uh, we had um, Italian. How many of you love Italian? It was Italian in New York City. My wife and I had this wonderful conversation with a neuropsychologist. And this is, I, can't, I never forget, I think about this often. This is what she told us. Anger is such a basic emotion that you can find it in almost every pathology. So where there's greed, you're going to find anger. Where there's lust, you're going to find anger. Where there's grief, you're going to find anger. Where there's sadness, you're going to find anger. Anger is merely impossible to not locate or trace back in every defective pathology. In addition, this is what she said, where there is anger or contempt, let's say contempt, there is also sadness. And where there's sadness, there will be anger because they mirror each other. So where someone is angry, you see someone angry and they're losing it and all that kind of stuff, right? You can bet your bottom dollar, right? We don't bet here, but if you're a better, right? What does that even mean, guys? Bet your bottom dollar. Let's just move on. Someone who is angry, you know what's behind that? Sadness. And someone who's really sad inside, guess what's behind that? Anger. They mirror each other. This is why Jesus, before he tells us how to become a person of love, starts with, guys, we have to eliminate anger because it is a basic emotion that infects and withers the human soul. In the book, The Body Keeps the Score, the author states that we literally carry our memories in our bodies. Our embodied self carries all the hurts, the anger, the trauma from the past on an unconscious level. And I just want to say this as an aside. This is why time will never heal. Only time with Jesus will heal your soul. Can I get an amen? But here's the thing. And some of you, first service, they didn't believe me. Okay. And I had to convince them. Finally, after 40 minutes of preaching the hell out of them, they, they came to my side. 
But let me say this. Most people in this room carry around a supply of anger. You are not a neutral person, a blank slate that has no issues. Guys, you could be happy right now. You could be smiling at me right now. You could have lifted your hand earlier, but you could possibly still have trauma and anger and rage that you are hiding, stuffing deep down inside, unwilling to allow the Holy Spirit to bring healing in your life and in your body. We carry our trauma. And this is why when someone becomes explosive, they don't simply become explosive because someone cut them off in traffic. Have you ever been on Eagle Road? And you're in a hurry, and there's a car in front of you, and they're on a leisure drive, and you're like, what the? But, you do... but you're a Christian, so you say, what the heck? Why are they on a leisurely, leisurely drive? You guys are laughing way too hard on that one. Bunch of cussers at Capitol. Right? And someone cuts you off. And you get really frustrated. Here's the thing. You don't just become explosive with anger because of one incident. You become explosive with anger because you carry it. You carry a supply of anger. Every human person does. This is why Jesus starts out his entire Magna Carta on how to become a person that flourishes by starting with contempt. The body keeps the score. We carry trauma and anger in our lives. And so Jesus says very explicitly in Matthew chapter 5, 21 through 26, that it is, guys, it is not enough not to kill someone. <laughs> Verse 21, you've heard that it was said of, the, of those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. What is Jesus saying? Guys, you, the bar is way too low here. <laughs> my kids do this all the time. When they get in trouble, my big three, when they're fighting and I'm talking to them about, guys, we've got to stop fighting and I describe why we don't fight. One of them inevitably will say, well, at least I didn't like punch my sister in the face. And I'm like, that's not the point. <laughs> why are you just down here? Can we bring the level of holiness a little bit upwards? And yet there are so many Christians that walk around. Well, I don't cheat on my taxes. Or I haven't killed someone. I'm not a psychopath. And we use that as a justification to cover up our hatred, our uncontrolled rage, even the trauma in our life. And Jesus makes it very clear in verse 22, but I say to you, guys, let's get the murder thing out. Most of you are not going to murder someone, hopefully. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of Gehenna or the fire. Verse 23, so if you're offering a gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Verse 24, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly. Everyone say quickly. With your accuser while you were going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge of the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. The point that Jesus is saying here is not enough not just to kill somebody. Come on, let's stop 
the low bar stuff. Come on, I'm calling you higher. Guys, can I just say this prophetically as your pastor? God's calling the church higher in this age. The world is looking at the church to see how they respond. They're clever little buggers. They're going to poke and they're going to prod and they're going to see what comes out of the church. And it's the Holy Spirit that is speaking to the church in this day, in this hour. He is calling us higher to another level of love. God is calling us out of the culture of contempt and treating people with bitterness and seething resentment. Even our political opponents, even if we're on the right, the right side of truth, guys, even if we have all of the wisdom of the cosmos, if we treat people with contempt, God will not bless you. He will remove his anointing. He will remove his presence from your life if and only if you continue to refuse the grace of God by turning away from contempt and walking in the love that God has for you and the love that God wants to work through you for the healing of the world. So the point that Jesus is saying here is we must allow the Holy Spirit to remove the anger and the contempt from our whole person because the entire edifice of human corruption is destroyed when anger is eliminated. When you allow the Holy Spirit to work in your heart with anger and, and the power of God comes and begins to transform your heart and you become less and less, less angry, you're going to become less and less all the other bad stuff. Anger is the root problem for Jesus. So how do we deal with anger really quick? Jesus makes it very clear in verses 23 through 26, which I read. You have to quickly reconcile with your brother. This is the picture. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, okay, so if you come to the temple, the temple cultus was sacred space. It was the most sacred thing you can do. If you brought a sacrifice to the priest, the priest would take the animal, put it on the altar, and sacrifice it as a representation of you and as a propitiation for sin. We've talked about this many times before. So Jesus is referring to the temple, someone coming, bringing a live animal, presenting it to the priest. This is a holy moment. Jesus says this, if at that moment as you give the animal to the priest and you remember that there's someone out there that you're not reconciled with, Jesus says, stop what you're doing. Stop this holy moment. Turn around, turn your back to the priest. Go, even if it means a three-day journey, and reconcile with your brother and sister. Okay, so what would that be like today? Well, it'd be like you're getting married, right? Marriage, Okay. And you're sitting there, okay, anyways. Um, and you're standing, you're facing each other, and you're giving your vows. And right before you smooch your spouse, okay? And right before you go on your honeymoon to God be the glory. And everyone said amen to that? Before all that good stuff, you realize that there's someone that you're not in right relationship with. Jesus is saying, I want you to stop this holy sacred moment, and I want you to make right what's wrong. Jesus is not like laying, he's not necessarily being prescriptive here. He's illustrating the heart of the kingdom. He's not, he's like, so, so if some of you are thinking about getting married and that happens to you and there's some, you know, and you realize in, in the exchange of vows that you have a problem with somebody, don't do that. Jesus is not saying do that. It's not prescriptive. What Jesus is saying 
is that this is an illustration of the heart of God. Relationships matter. Your heart matters. Matters infinitely before God. Then we come to verses 38 through 42. Jesus also illustrates the heart of the kingdom, and this is what he says in verse 38. So as you have, as you have addressed um, the need for anger, and you do it quickly. Well, let me say this really quick. Jesus also says, I just want to back up just a little bit. Jesus also says, if you want to address anger, you have to do it quickly. Right? Be angry, do not sin. But Paul also says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. What is he saying? He's saying that don't let anger smolder. You can be angry over that which is not the way it's supposed to be in your relationship with your kids, with the world. But don't let that anger smolder because anger that smolders quickly turns out of control, becomes a thing, a monster that you cannot control, and it begins to reshape your thinking. It, it, it damages your, your soul. It damages your relationship with God, and it damages your relationship with people, sometimes irreparably. So we come again to Matthew 5, 38 through 48, and this is what Jesus said. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him what? Two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So Jesus is illustrating the heart of the kingdom. He's talking to now people that have gone through the progressions of eliminating anger from their life. He's now giving us an illustration of how to respond to evil. How do we respond with, to evil? We respond to evil with genuine loving goodness. What Jesus, let me say this really quick, what Jesus is not saying is that you become a doormat. What Jesus is not saying that if you're living in a, if you're in a domestic situation where you're being abused physically, emotionally, spiritually, sexually, whatever, that you just take it, right? No, there are some evils that we will resist and condemn and criticize in the name of Jesus. And if you're in a situation like that, we will support you, and you need to get out of a situation like that. Can I get an amen, church? So Jesus is not saying that you just accept every evil that comes against you. What Jesus is saying, when in the wisdom of God, again, he's illustrating the heart of the kingdom, when someone comes to you and does evil, to the best of your ability, respond by shocking the powers of evil who traffic in wickedness and human folly. Shock them with some good old-fashioned goodness. Love them. Care for them. Come on, somebody. Respond not in kind. Romans chapter 12 makes it very clear. You overcome evil by evil. You overcome evil by doing good. Here's, here's the weird logic right now in American politics and even in American writ large. Right? We believe that the only way to defeat evil is by doing evil. We believe, in, basically, if you went back to the first century, many, many followers of God believe that the only way you could defeat paganism is by becoming pagan, by doing violence. Jesus is saying that is not how it works in my kingdom. 
the way you overcome evil is by lavishing the world, which is good old fashioned, good love. Amen. Flannery O'Connor said this about her novels. I want to shock to the heart of hearing. I want to speak loud. And to those who are blind, I want to draw large and startling characters because I want to shock people by the love of God, the graphic love of God. So why should we do this? Well, again, this illustrates what Jesus is talking about, responding to evil with good. It illustrates the character of God. In Luke 23, 34, Jesus, guys, is on the cross for the sins of the world. And what does he say? Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. How did Jesus respond to evil? Did he blankety blank them? When he was being mocked and reviled, when he was being tortured, did he call down hellfire and damnation? He's saying that I will torture, I'm God, and I will torture your soul for eternity? He never said anything like that. What did he say? He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Jesus on the cross, cross absorbed the pain and sin of others, including you and me. He took all the vileness and the hatred and the seething resentment, all the sin, all the bitterness. And what did he do? He released blessing. He released forgiveness. He released life. He let, in the words of one author, he let his body become a graveyard for hate and, condemn, and, and, and contempt. And then he said those beautiful words, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. In fact, Jesus, as Paul says in Romans chapter five, that while we were still in sin, Christ died for you and I. That should have, I should have got a really good hand clap for that. I'm even waiting for it. I'm not preaching until I'm waiting. While you were broken and seething with resentment and saying all kinds of hateful things against God and other people, when you were in sin, separated from God because of your bad decisions, God himself came to you and died for your sake and absorbed your sin and released blessing on your life. I don't know about you, but that is good news. Good news. It's funny, like many people think that the good news of Jesus goes something like this, that God sent his son into the world to die for us so that he could love us. That's not the good news of Jesus. The good news of Jesus is that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God, in other words, is not a wrathful deity who had to send his son to appease his wrath in order to love you. No, God sent his son because he loved you with an everlasting love. And in your brokenness and in your trauma and in your woundedness and in your sin and in your hatred and in your contempt and in the vileness of your soul, it is Jesus out of his love who gave his life for us. I know we don't talk like this much in church. We talk about therapeutic stuff and how you become the best version of yourself. I think we just need to talk about the Bible. God loved you so much so that our lives are transformed. And as we open our hearts up to this transformative love of God, 
God then works his love through us. So Jesus did not retaliate with a blankety blank, as I mentioned. He did not mock when he was mocked. He did not call down hellfire and damnation on people as he died for us. What did he do? Well, he gave his life. He absorbed it. The question is, and maybe some of you are thinking this, well, I can't do that, Chris. I can't bless my enemies like that. How, how, can, how can I do that? In fact, Chris, Jesus is God, right? Chris, have you heard anything about the hypostatic union, right? That God is fully man and fully God, right? That's not me. Jesus is cosmically singular, right? He is the son of God. So Jesus can't be expecting me to be like him. And the opposite is true. Jesus intends, please hear me today. Jesus intends to turn you into a person who can do what he did. And I've, I don't have space today to talk about that, which I would love to talk about that. But Jesus intends to turn you into a person of love and grace and blessing. Acts chapter 7, we find the same thing happening with Stephen as we close this part of the message. Stephen is martyred. And what does he say? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, Stephen did not, out of the own human resources of his life and ingenuity, bless his enemies. It was through the power of the Spirit and through his transformed heart and mind that Stephen was able to bless those who were throwing rocks and stones at him. You see, this is how Christianity transformed the, the Roman Empire. They shocked the world through genuine goodness. They nursed pagans back to health during the Black Plague. They went into urban centers. And those who had previously persecuted them, it was Christians who went back and nursed the pagans. Family and friends were left in these cities to die. It was the Christians who gave up their life to take care of those who were suffering unimaginable sickness. It was the Christians who blessed their enemies as they were being martyred for their faith. It was Christians who took care of the poor and the vulnerable, as we've talked about. The church is called, guys, to be a prophetic voice to our world. We are called to embody goodness in word and deed. We are called to shock the world by blessing our enemies. And as we do that, the world is changed. And as a prophetic witness, we're also called to speak the truth in love. Finally, we come to Matthew chapter 5, 43 through 48, and here we see kind of the climax of who God is, his character, and his heart. I just want to read this really quick, and then I want to spend just a few moments in prayer. Matthew 5, 43, do we have that, guys? I don't know if we have that. Jesus says this, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So, they may, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Verse 47, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do, do not even the Gentiles do the same. Verse 48, therefore you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The better translation should be, you must be merciful as your heavenly father is merciful. So Jesus is saying, there's a progression here. When you eliminate anger from your heart, you allow the Holy Spirit to work and transform your mind and your heart. As you begin, instead of retaliating to evil people and wickedness with wickedness, 
you retaliate or respond would be a better word, in love and blessing. As you begin to do that, this is what you need to do with your enemies. You need to pray for them. Are you with me? So how do we, there are three things that I want to share and then I'm going to pray for all of us. Three things, three ways in which we can become a person of love and eliminate anger from our heart. Number one, if you're taking notes, you can just write this down. Wounding. Wounding is behind anger in many cases. Trauma and sadness is behind anger. It's what drives it. If you can allow, and let me just suggest this. I want to be really sensitive in this moment, but if you can allow the woundedness and the brokenness that you've experienced that can cause anger and frustration, if you can direct that towards God, that can free you from everything that keeps you from him. In fact, wounding can either take you away from God or it can draw you closer to God. The choice is yours. You can allow the, the woundedness to bring you closer to Jesus and open up your heart to him and allow him to heal you. And in fact, as you, if, if, if you make the choice, you can allow past experiences and horrible things that people have spoken over you and the trauma that you've experienced in your life, you can allow that this is powerful. You can allow that to grow a spiritual maturity in your life. I have found, it's so counterintuitive, guys, but I have found that the wounding that I've experienced in my life, we all have wounds, right? Can I get an amen to that? There's about five of you that have wounds in your life. My God, the devil is a liar, right? Come on, how many of you have some wounds in your life, right? We carry it in our bodies, and if we stuff it down and we don't address it and we don't deal with it, it just, it, it, guys, it's going to fester and it's going to grow. And it's not only going to hurt other people, it's going it's to tragically wither your soul and keep you from the life that God has for you. And it, it, it ultimately will keep you from becoming a person of love. But what I, it, it's so counterintuitive, but I have found that the broken seasons in my life where I have been hurt I've gone through hard things and I've wondered, God, where are you? And why would this person do this? And all this kind of stuff. And I felt betrayed that I, I had to make a choice. Sometimes I made the wrong choice, but in, by the grace of God, I made the right choice in some seasons. And that woundedness drew me closer to Jesus. And guess what happened? It just, it just cut to the very heart of reality in my life. I began to realize as I took my woundedness and I gave it to God, all the pretense that I was living in, all the silly things and all the attachments outside of God that I was giving my heart and my mind to, it's like the power of God just came and cut that off. I began through wounds and through trauma as I gave it and directed it to God. I began to get into the heart of reality. I began to see who God really was. I began to see myself. I began to see all these attachments that I thought were so important. I began to realize that they were just so trivial in light of eternity. You see, when you allow woundedness and brokenness to draw you closer to Jesus, it cuts at the heart of those things that keep you from his life and his peace and his joy and it grows you up into the maturity that God has for every single child of God in this room and the power of God and his anointing then is released in your life and as you begin to walk in the power and the grace of God God takes those wounds and works through your life to help those who also have wounds in their life 
How do you el eliminate anger? You, you eliminate it by bringing your wounds to God. You allow, in a counterintuitive way, wounds to do a deep work in your heart, in your mind. The second thing, and this is, God, go through this really quick, is we need each other. Can I get an amen? There's no such thing as me and Jesus in the kingdom of God. I want to read this really quick. Individuals are shaped not primarily through classes or personal experience, but by practices of their community. Americans like to think that they are made or they have made themselves who they are, but we are much more than the product of how we've been treated by our families and friends than we are of our own choices. So Christians cannot develop the unique character that the gospel creates simply through having a one-on-one -on -one relationship with God. They must be a part of a Christian community whose life patterns are not assimilated to the values of the world around it. Without thick communities, we cannot become who God has called us to be. And many times, as Christians, we have thin relationships. This is what he's saying. We have thin relationships, which, which means we come on a Sunday, maybe with our little micro family, we high five each other, we worship, we listen to a fiery redhead, right? And then we go out and we do some fellowship time and then we kind of, through our week, we just kind of do our own thing. That's what scholars call thin relationships. Thick relationships are those who come to church and they open up their lives in vulnerability and they develop deep and lasting friendships and relationships with people that go outside of a Sunday morning it is within that context that God wants for all of us to experience that we learn to become a people of love and blessing. You cannot become a person who blesses one's enemy on your own. Can I get an amen? We need each other. We need each other. We need, we need to process our emotions with each other. We need strength from community. We need to laugh with each other. We need lasting relationships. We need people that we're accountable to. Can I get an amen? We need people who can speak some truth into us without us getting so flipping defensive. <laughs> There's nothing ever wrong with me. This is the thing, this is the frustrating thing as a pastor when I talk to people and they become defensive about something that's just maybe a little minor thing. I just, it, the assumption when you become defensive is as if you have never been wrong in time and space. Guys, there's not one person in here that is perfect. And we need relationships that we trust and we respect and we're accountable to that can speak truth and love to us. And within that whole framework, we're built up, we're edified. And, and within that framework, we begin to love as Jesus has called us to love. But it requires and it necessitates vulnerability. And Americans, we don't like that, right? Like some of you, you're, you're like, you're, you're honestly thinking that if I actually open up and share with a trusted source or trusted person who I really am, I'm going to be rejected. That's why I'm convinced that most people don't want to open up their lives within, within the church is because they just assume church people are judgmental and, and they're going to treat me with contempt. Maybe in some cases that, that, that is true, but here at this church, we're not perfect and we got some messed up Raider fans here but we're a church that loves. And I want to encourage you to open up your life, become vulnerable, build long lasting relationships, be a part of a thick community, not a thin community. Give your life to becoming a person that God has called you to be. You cannot do that on your own. You can only do that within the church. 
The Bible makes it very clear as I closed, Matthew 16, that it's the church, it's the church that will go after the gates of hell, right? It's not a Ken Wilde, it's not a Chris Wilde, it's not a Rob, it's not a Shane, it's not a Susan, it's not a Sally, it's not just one person that will prevail against the gates of hell, it is the church. We need each other, we need each other. Finally, number three, some of you don't believe me, so I'll just move on. We have to pray. You have to pray. Let me say this as I close. Prayer isn't a place to be good, guys. It's a place to be honest. Psalms is a wonderful illustration of this. David, what does he do? He goes to God in prayer and he vents like a madman. He rages. He releases his tension to God, his bitterness, his wounds. He becomes absolutely vulnerable to the King of kings and Lord of lords. And God always meets him there with grace and love and healing and truth and hope. Yes, there are times when as we grow in our relationship with God, we're so in tune with the Spirit and we're praying intercessory prayers over our nation. And that can happen. But many times we don't think that prayer is also a place where, man, it's, we've got to be honest. We've got to learn to be vulnerable before God and bring all of our trauma and all the things that need to be healing to, to Him. Here's the thing. People cannot heal people. Only the Holy Spirit can. Prayer cannot become Ugh, something that I do 15 minutes a day, right? Prayer is not something you just grit your teeth. It's like a spiritual discipline. I'm going to open up my Bible and I'm going to pray to the holy God of everything, right? I, so many people, we just, I get it. We're tired, we're exhausted, but we just, we assume that's what prayer is. Just got to get through it and then we'll get something. We don't know what what that something is all the time, but we'll get something out of it. No, prayer is not just a spiritual discipline. It's your lifeline. If you want to be a person of love, if you want to be a person of joy and hope, you have to become a person of prayer. Prayer is where we withdraw from the world and it's where we encounter the living God and the living God then comes and transforms us and then we go back into the world and we release blessing and forgiveness and healing. So take your wounds, process, process them before God. Your wounds are not a sign that God is absent. Can I get an amen? Your wounds are not a sign that God does not love you, nor has he forsaken you. Your wounds, the trauma, the things that have happened to you in the past, all the things that are seething inside of your heart right now, the things that you've carried in your life are not in any way signs that God is not near to you. I want you to see them as signs and opportunities to bring all that stuff to God so God can heal you so God can turn you into a healer. We need friends, we need communities. Come on guys, I'm gonna challenge you. I know some of you don't believe me and some of you won't. This is like going over your head, but I'm gonna get you one day. One Sunday, the Holy Spirit's gonna get a hold of your heart. I'm, I'm coming after you. Like, what, what am I talking about, guys? The Holy Spirit's gonna get a hold of your heart and you're gonna begin to realize that you need, you need people in your life. 
You need good people who love Jesus in your life. And finally, we need to understand that prayer is not just something that we do, guys. It's, it's, it's our lifestyle. It's our lifestyle. It's who we are. It's our lifeline. And as we learn, and this is where I'm going to close, as we learn to do this stuff, as we give our wounds to Jesus, as we learn to become a part of a community, as we allow Jesus to transform our heart, as, as we become people who learn to bless our enemies, that is when, when we have that foundation, this is where I'm going to end, I'm going to pray, that is when we can truly in power and with grace speak the truth to other people. See, here's the thing. People are not listening to you because there's so much anger in your heart that has turned into contempt. Your heart has become hard. You could be on the right side of truth, but because you're not tender-hearted, according to Colossians chapter 3, Paul says, if you're a follower of Jesus, put on tender hearts. Contempt, what does it do? It corrupts the heart. It hardens your heart. So some of you in your relationships, maybe in your marriages, maybe in your family, your heart has become so hard because of contempt. You've not allowed the Holy Spirit to speak to you or to work in your life. Let me say it that way. You find it impossible why people aren't getting what you're telling them. The reason why people are not listening is because you don't have a tender heart. Let me say this really quick. Guys, it takes time for every person to digest the truth. It takes time. This is why the Bible makes it very clear that God is patient with us. Aren't you glad? First Peter says this, with one day is a thousand years. And the whole point that Peter is saying, guys, God wants everyone in this world to repent. That is why he's delaying judgment because he's a patient God. I am so thankful today that God was patient with me and my stupidity. I'm so glad God is patient with all of us in our brokenness. It takes time to digest the truth. And so what we need in this world is we need people who are laying the foundation of prayer and allowing the Holy Spirit to transform our wounds and our anger and turning us into people who love and bless our enemies. And as our hearts become soft, guess what happens? You then become a person that people will listen to. This is where I end. As I mentioned at the very beginning, many people, please don't assume, I'm making a distinction. Many people assume that if you love someone, you can't disagree with someone. I disagree with that. I think if you have the right heart and a tender heart, you can speak the truth and they'll listen. So how does that happen? It's just, you care for people. When you're having a conversation with someone in the workplace and they have a different perspective on maybe something political, maybe theological, what do you do? Or maybe someone in the church that you just fundamentally disagree with. How do you handle that situation? This is just really simple. Or maybe it's in a marriage or maybe it's in your family. These are basic principles. First, you listen and enter sympathetically into the lives of someone else. You practice patience. You restate. This is just practical stuff. You restate their issue, their concern, and then you tell them in a loving way why you disagree with them. And then you do it all over again. You listen and you love. That's the kind of people God has called us to be. Can I get an amen? I end with this story. I was on vacation uh, two months ago. We were in Washington and uh, my kids were hungry, so I went to a restaurant to pick up some food. I was sitting at a table by myself 
in the middle of nowhere, waiting for my food. Some dude comes up, looks at me and says, can I sit here? I'm like, yeah, you can sit here. And so I was a little taken back. And uh, so he sat down, he introduced himself. We'll call him Nick, everyone say Nick. He goes, hey, my, my name's Nick. And he goes, what's your name? I go, my name's Chris. And he's like, then he goes off, starts talking about um, his use of psychedelics and how he's into, he's moving to this certain uh, state and how he's into a lot of different stuff. He's walking me through some of this conspiracy stuff regarding drugs and psychedelics and all this kind of stuff. Talking about his philosophy on Rousseau and like, you know, and I was loving it, right? And, and then he got on the subject of church. And I'd even mention one thing, it's so funny. God is such a, God is so good, right? And he goes, you know what? Not only am I so frustrated with the state of Washington as, you know, their, their response with psychedelics, I'm just frustrated with the church, right? The church, they're greedy pastors. They don't listen. They don't care. They're judgmental. And he just goes off and off and off how the church is bankrupt of love. And I'm just sitting there smiling. I'm like, yeah, sometimes that happens. He doesn't even know who I am. <laughs> and then he stops himself and he goes, he goes, Chris, what do you do for a living? I forgot. <laughs> And I go, well, I didn't tell you, I'm a pastor. <laughs> and he stopped and he's like, oh, and then he totally changed his tone. He's like, I know a couple good pastors and <laughs> church isn't that bad and you don't seem like a greedy guy. And I remember that gave me, I just listened. I wasn't defensive. I, like he said some very pointed acidic things against the church, but I just, I just listened. I entered sympathetically into the conversation. And he opened up and I said, hey, can I talk to you about the love of God? You talked about God as some universal consciousness. I, I like to name that universal consciousness as a personal being and his name is Jesus. And I know you might not agree with this, but he loves you with an everlasting love. And I'm sorry for the hurt that you've experienced and, and in proxy for those people in your life that represented Jesus who hurt you, please, please forgive us. But I want you to know that God loves you with an everlasting love and his heart was opened and soft. And then I got a call and my kids were hungry and I had to leave. So I said, hey, brother, can I pray for you? Nick, you're moving to Maine tomorrow. Can I pray for you? And I just simply prayed for him, right? I, and in that moment, in that moment, with a tender heart, I am convinced that a little bit of his perspective and a little bit of his heart, a little bit of his mindset was changed. He wasn't changed totally, but I believe God was working in this special circumstance because, and I, guys, I'm a, I'm a fiery person. I'm stubborn. I like my own way, right? And so the Holy Spirit has worked this in me, but I chose simply to listen to him. The whole time, and I'm done here, the whole time he was saying, the church doesn't listen. Pastors suck as he's telling this to a pastor who's listening and loving him. And like the point that I'm trying to make is that we're called to do this with everyone. We're called to love and to bless our neighbors. Amen. I want you to bow your heads, close your eyes. Father, I thank you for your grace today. I know we went a little too long. Is that okay, church? Lord, we live in a culture defined by contempt. You've called the church to speak the truth in love. You've called us at times to disagree. You've called us to call out sin, but, but I think you've also called us to love, called us to bless. And I thank you this community of capital will learn 
this tension of calling out evil and at the same time blessing our enemies. I pray in this moment that you would come to every son and daughter and if there's healing that needs to take place, Lord, let healing be released in their lives. Lord, if there's seething resentment and anger and bitterness, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come and through repentance and through the work of grace, you would set your sons and daughters free. Lord, I thank you that you would begin to transform our hearts today. Father, I know some people are really angry over a lost loved one. Some, so there's some people in this room, you might be angry at God himself. I just ask Holy Spirit, you would come, whoever that might be, you would come right now through the power of the Holy Spirit and show them how much you love them. Pray that you would come and transform our soul so that we can become people who really love in a culture of contempt. So I thank you, Father, for your grace right now. If you could take your hand, church, put it on your heart. Father, I thank you as we place our hands on our heart right now and as we move out of this portion of the service. Holy Spirit, come and fill us up with your presence. By the power of the Spirit, begin to eliminate the anger, expose where that anger is. Come and bring to the surface trauma and healing that needs to take place in our lives. And through your truth and through your love and through your patience, begin to change us as a people today. We say yes to you, Holy Spirit. We say no to contempt. We say no to the ways in which our lives are spoiled by resentment and anger and hatred. Fill us up today with your love, your power, and your presence in the mighty name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to give towards this ministry, learn more about our church and events, or are in need of prayer, please visit capitalchurch.co.